Section 9 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 1. Profiles of Disorder. Atlanta. On Saturday, June 17th, as the National Guard was being withdrawn from Cincinnati, the same type of minor police arrest that had initiated the Cincinnati riot took place in Atlanta. Rapid industrialization following World War II, coupled with annexations that quadrupled the area of the city, had made Atlanta a vigorous and booming community. Pragmatic business and political leaders worked to give it a reputation as the moderate stronghold of the Deep South. Nevertheless, despite acceptance in principle of integration of schools and facilities, the fact that the city is the headquarters both for civil rights organizations and segregationist elements created a strong and ever-present potential for conflict. The rapidly growing Negro population, which by the summer of 1967 had reached an estimated 44% and was scattered in several ghettos throughout the city, was maintaining constant pressure on surrounding white residential areas. Some real estate agents engaged in blockbusting tactics to stimulate panic sales by white homeowners. Footnote. A block is considered to have been busted when one Negro family has been sold a home in a previously all-white area. End of footnote. The city police were continually on the alert to keep marches and countermarches of civil rights and white supremacist organizations from flaring into violence. In September 1966, following a fatal shooting by a police officer of a Negro auto thief who was resisting arrest, only the dramatic ghetto appearance of Mayor Ivan Allen Jr. had averted a riot. Boasting that Atlanta had the largest KKK membership in the country, the Klan, on June 4, 1967, marched through one of the poorer Negro sections. A massive police escort prevented a racial clash. According to Mayor Allen, 55% of municipal employees hired in 1967 were Negroes, bringing their proportion of the city workforce to 28%. Of 908 police department employees, 85 are Negro a higher proportion of Negroes than in most major city police departments in the nation. To the Negro community, however, it appeared that the progress made served only to reduce the level of inequality. Equal conditions for blacks and whites remained a hope for the future. Different pay scales for black and white municipal employees performing the same jobs had been only recently eliminated. The economic and educational gap between the black and white populations may in fact have been increasing. The average white Atlantan was a high school graduate. The average Negro Atlantan had not completed the eighth grade. In 1960, the median income of a Negro family was less than half of the whites' $6,350 a year, and 48% of Negro families earned less than $3,000 a year. 50% of the men worked in unskilled jobs, and many more Negro women than men, 7.9% as against 4.9% of the respective workforces, held well-paying, white-collar jobs. Living on marginal incomes in cramped and deteriorating quarters, one-third of the housing was overcrowded and more than half substandard. Families were breaking up at an increasing rate. In approximately four out of every ten Negro homes, the father was missing. In the case of families living in public housing projects, more than 60% are headed by females. 
Mayor Allen estimated there were 25,000 jobs in the city waiting to be filled because people lacked the education or skills to fill them. Yet overcrowding in many Negro schools forced the scheduling of extended and double sessions. Although Negroes comprised 60% of the school population, there were 14 white high schools compared to nine Negro. The city has integrated its schools, but de facto segregation as a result of housing patterns has had the effect of continuing separate schooling of nearly all white and Negro pupils. White high school students attended classes six and a half hours a day. Negroes in high schools with double sessions attended four and a half. One Atlanta newspaper continued to advertise jobs by race, and in some industrial plants there were Negro jobs and white jobs, with little chance for advancement by Negroes. Shortly after 8 p.m. on Saturday, June 17th, a young Negro, E.W., carrying a can of beer, attempted to enter the Flamingo Grill in the Dixie Hill Shopping Center. When a Negro security guard told the youth he could not enter, a scuffle ensued. Police officers were called to the guard's aid. E.W. received help from his 19-year-old sister, who flailed away at officers with her purse. Another 19-year-old Negro youth entered the fray. All three were arrested. Although some 200 to 300 persons had been drawn to the scene of the incident, when police asked them to disperse, they complied. Because the area is isolated from the city in terms of transportation, and there are few recreational facilities, the shopping center is a natural gathering place. The next night, Sunday, an even bigger crowd was on hand. As they mingled, residents discussed their grievances. They were bitter about their inability to get the city government to correct conditions and make improvements. Garbage sometimes was not picked up for two weeks in succession. Overflowing garbage cans, littered streets, and cluttered empty lots were breeding grounds for rats. Inadequate storm drains led to flooded streets. Although residents had obtained title to several empty lots for use as playgrounds, the city failed to provide the equipment and men necessary to convert them. The area lacked a swimming pool. A nearby park was inaccessible because of the lack of a road. Petitions submitted to the mayor's office for the correcting of these and other conditions were acknowledged, but not acted upon. Since only one of the 16 aldermen was a Negro, and a number of black wards were represented by white aldermen, many Negroes felt they were not being properly represented in the city government. The small number of elected Negro officials appeared to be due to a system in which aldermen are elected at large, but represent specific wards and must reside in the wards from which they are elected. Because of the quilted pattern of black-white housing, white candidates were able to meet the residency requirements for running from predominantly Negro wards. Since, however, candidates are dependent upon the citywide vote for election, and the city has a white majority, few Negroes had been able to attain office. A decision was made by the Dixie Hills residents to organize committees and hold a protest meeting the next night. The headquarters of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, is located in Atlanta. Its former president, Stokely Carmichael, wearing a green Malcolm X sweatshirt, appeared together with several companions. Approaching a police captain, Carmichael asked why there were so many police cars in the area. Informed that they were there to make sure there was no disturbance, Carmichael, clapping his hands, declared in a sing-song voice that there might have to be a riot if the police cars were not removed. When Carmichael refused to move on as requested, he was arrested. Soon released on bail, the next morning Carmichael declared that the black people were preparing to resist armed aggression by the police by whatever means necessary. 
Shortly thereafter, in the Dixie Hills shopping center, which had been closed down for the day, a Negro youth using a broom handle began to pound on the outside bell of a burglar alarm that had been set off, apparently by a short circuit. Police officers responded to the alarm and ordered him to stop hitting the bell. A scuffle ensued. Several bystanders intervened. One of the officers drew his service revolver and fired, superficially wounding the young man. Tension rose. Approximately 250 persons were present at that evening's meeting. When a number of Negro leaders urged the submission of a petition of grievances through legal channels, the response was lukewarm. When Carmichael took to the podium, urging Negroes to take to the streets and force the police department to work until they fall in their tracks, the response was tumultuous. The press quoted him as saying, It's not a question of law and order. We are not concerned with peace. We are concerned with the liberation of black people. We have to build a revolution. As the people present at the meeting poured into the street, they were joined by others. The crowd soon numbered an estimated 1,000. From alleys and rooftops, rocks and bottles were thrown at the nine police officers on the scene. Windows of police cars were broken. Firecrackers exploded in the darkness. Police believe they may have been fired on. Reinforced by approximately 60 to 70 officers, the police, firing over the heads of the crowd, quickly regained control. Of the 10 persons arrested, six were 21 years of age or younger. Only one was in his 30s. The next day, city equipment appeared in the area to begin work on the long-delayed playgrounds and other projects demanded by the citizens. It was announced that a Negro youth patrol would be established along the lines of the Tampa White Hats. SNCC responded that volunteers for the patrol would be selling their black brothers out and would be viewed as black traitors, to be dealt with in the manner we see fit. Nevertheless, during the course of the summer, the 200 youths participating in the Corps played an important role in preventing a serious outbreak. The police believed that establishment of the Youth Corps became a major factor in improving police-community relations. Another meeting of area residents was called for Tuesday evening. At its conclusion, 200 protesters were met by 300 police officers. As two police officers chased several boys down the street, a cherry bomb or incendiary device exploded at the officer's feet. In response, several shots were fired from a group of police consisting mostly of Negro officers. The discharge from a shotgun struck in the midst of several persons sitting on the front porch of a house. A 46-year-old man was killed. A 9-year-old boy was critically injured. Because of the efforts of neighborhood anti-poverty workers who circulated through the area and the later appearance of Mayor Allen, no further violence ensued. When H. Rapp Brown, who had returned to the city that afternoon, went to other Negro areas in an attempt to initiate a demonstration against the shooting of the Negroes on the porch, he met with no response. Within the next few days, a petition was drawn up by State Senator Leroy Johnson and other moderate Negro leaders demanding that Stokely Carmichael get out of the community and allow the people to handle their own affairs. It was signed by more than 1,000 persons in the Dixie Hills area. End of Section 9. Recording by Colleen McMahon.